We are uh, about six weeks into a series that we have set aside to look at decision-making among the people of God. We've called it This or That. How is it that you make choices that honor God? How is it that you discern the will and purpose of God in the different facets of our lives? And this morning, we're taking a bit of a side road, a detour, and we're going to look at decision-making specifically in the areas of finance. And uh, boy, Art has done it spectacularly well already. And I'm so grateful to be able to work alongside a gifted and articulate and passionate colleague who dresses far better than I do on a Sunday morning. In fact, you know what? You've been sitting for a long time. Let's do this. Stand up together. Have a look around you. Find somebody close to you and say, hey, you know what? You look pretty good today. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that's good enough. Have a seat. None of you look as good as art, but uh, you all look pretty good. We're going to look at two metaphors and apply them to the way that we understand and use money in our lives. The first is this, that, that money is a tool. It's an effective tool. It's a helpful tool. But here's the second. Money can sometimes be a drug. It can be addictive. It can be intoxicating. It can be dangerous. We value money because it's useful. It lets us pay the bill. We can make rent. We can keep lights on. We can keep our bed and get work done and all of these things. This understanding of money in Jesus' parable, the talents, where the master, his servants, a certain amount of money, and then says to them, I want you to put the money to work. And then when I come back, I'd love to hear what you did with it. Because money can be a tool. It can be a tool in the world. It can be a tool in the kingdom of God. But the theory of money as a tool doesn't apply to everything that we experience, does it? It doesn't explain why people who are already rolling in money will work so hard to get even more of it. Why the person who has quite enough money will make sacrifices in lots of other areas of relationships in their time. They'll sacrifice their emotional and even their physical health just to get more of it. That's not just money as a tool. When it comes to tools, most people don't have a deep emotional attachment to their tools. In fact, lots of people don't have tools at all. One of my good friends in years past didn't own a single tool, not not a screwdriver, not a wrench, not a pair of pliers. And he realized in doing that, he got out of any work whatsoever that would require a tool. So you'd have to go visit Albert just to screw in the faceplate on a light switch because he didn't keep any tools. Money is a tool. But it's also a drug. It can make us feel things we might not otherwise feel. It can give us a temporary escape or release from stress or pain. The momentary illusion of well-being, it gives us a bit of a buzz, doesn't it? You agree? I mean, there's nothing like the buzz that you get when you go out and buy something that you wanted and there's a thrill in it. And the biblical writers, they knew about this dimension of money as well. The Apostle Paul wrote, and this is in 1 Timothy in chapter 6, that those who want to get rich fall into a temptation, a trap, 
and into it many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So money is a tool, money is a drug. Of course, the biblical language for this is that money can be a servant or money can be an idol. And the great question is, am I using money as a tool, a tool that's effective for its owner, for God, or am I using money as a drug for the intoxication that I have experienced in my own life? Am I storing up treasures in heaven, or am I storing up treasures on earth? Money's a great tool. Isn't that, I mean, you can accomplish so much. And I, I never want to say so much about money that you go away feeling like it's not an important thing. It's important in your lives. It's important in the life of God's people. It's a great tool, but it's also a lethal drug. And I was thinking this week, what a, what a great thing it would be for a church. What a great thing it would be for you and for myself if we could get this right. If we could get freed up from that money as a drug perspective and embrace money as a tool useful by God. So in the Bible, and we're going to spend some time in the scriptures today. Is that okay if we geek out a little bit on the Bible? All right. In the Bible, there's this great discipline to free up God's people when it comes to money. It's called tithing. The word tithe, in both of the languages of the Bible, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament and Greek, the word tithe means tenth. Technically, it means to give a tenth of something. Let me pause. Is my mic cutting in and out a lot? Yeah? Should I just grab another one? Why don't I grab this one? There we go. So there's this discipline called tithing. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the definition is that if you are familiar with the church, you've heard the word used before. If you're new to the church, you might be brand new to this word tithe. But we often use it in strange ways. You'll hear people say, I gave my tithe of $10 to the church this week. And that's very possible that you did. But for the math challenged among us, for that to be true, at least biblically, that would mean that your total earnings for the week were $100. Now, I don't want you to get obsessed with the percentage or the number. Again, we're going to spend a little bit of time, particularly in the Old Testament. But I want you to see that that the purpose of the tithe in the Old Testament was to cultivate a culture of generosity. In fact, in the Old Testament, the way that they did that was through a series of tithes. There weren't just one. In fact, there were three. In the next few minutes, we're going to take a a crash course on the culture of generosity, on God's way of uh, of forming that in the life in the life of His people, the way that we can use money as a tool and not as a drug. We're going to do that. Here's the framework. We're going to go through five different features of their lives as a people. The first two, we're going to spend a little bit longer on. The next three, you're going to go through pretty quickly. So if you're benchmarking things by how long we spend on the first one, don't worry, you'll be out before dinner time. The first is their culture of generosity around tithing. This is the thing we're talking about. Again, Israel didn't have just one tithe. They actually had 
3. And what came to be known as the first tithe is described in the book of Numbers. Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Four books in. Turn with me now to Numbers chapter 18. And here God says, I give now to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they do while serving at the tent of meeting. And God's people said, huh? Huh. What is that all about? When Israel came to occupy their homeland, remember they'd been dreaming about a land of their own, and God had promised them, and eventually they settled in to what became the nation of Israel. And every one of the, the tribes, the family groups, got a parcel of land for them and for their descendants, except one. There was one group, the tribe of Levi. That's the word Levites, the tribe of Levi. And they didn't get land because uh, the part of their society wanted them to be freed up so they didn't have to farm the land. These were the ones who would be the counselors, the pastors, the priests, the worship leaders. And they, they were to be freed up in order to care for God's people and to lead people in worship. And the way that their survival would be assured, because remember, this is a land-based economy. If you don't have land, you die. Either you found work as a servant on the land or you owned it yourselves. The way that they survived is everybody else set aside a little piece of the, of, of the fruits of the land and gave it to them, made their work possible. So that was the tithe. But there's a second tithe. This tithe is talked about in the book of Deuteronomy. So next chapter in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy in chapter 14, tithe number two. Be sure now that you set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. And you eat that tithe. You eat of the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. But here's the, here's the particular feature of this tithe. You do it in the presence of the Lord your God at the place that he will choose as the dwelling for his name so that you will learn to revere the Lord your God always. You see, what this tithe was meant to do was to draw God's people together in worship and celebration. If possible, you did this at the central place of worship in the life of the people, which, you know, was the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. For us, it would be the church or something that gathers together the people of God. And a big part of this tithe was to learn to associate celebration of God's goodness with the things that we had. Listen to this. This is amazing. Deuteronomy 14, verse 26. This is the description about how to use this tithe. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drinks, or anything that you wish. And then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. That's a passage I never heard in the Baptist church where I grew up. And some of you are thinking, hey, does that mean I can use my tithe to buy alcohol and wine and all that stuff? And the short answer is no. <laughs> but, but, I mean, this is important. God wants to connect giving, generosity, with celebration. 
This is to be a moment of joy. It's for that reason, and Sheldon mentioned this verse earlier, that Paul would go on to say, hey, I want each one of you, this is 2 Corinthians 9, I want each one of you to give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not to do it reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. So the purpose of this tithe was to associate generosity with celebration. Let me let me give you an example. It's one small thing that I do. I'm not putting it out there as uh, as something to model, and I'm not recommending it. But just for me, this is a way of connecting joy and generosity in my life. I love to eat. I mean, that much is obvious, right? I I love to eat, and I I try to eat reasonably carefully six days the week of the week, but. On the Sabbath, my Sabbath, I I really let loose. I, I get up early. I like to. I go for a long run or a cycle. These are some of, for me, the richest times of prayer and devotion and worship that I have during the week. And then I come back and I, I crash for a minute and recover. And then it starts. I whip up a batch of spicy chicken wings. Now, these are hot. Like, if you like hot, these are hot. And then some vegetables and blue cheese or, or, or hummus. And I sit down and I just, I gorge on them. And, and popcorn for dinner and ice cream later at night. The Sabbath is my day to eat. Now, some of the other things I do on the Sabbath. Sabbath is often the day that I'm working on our finances and I'm thinking about givings. And Sabbath is the day of the week when I catch up on the areas of service that I'm not able to do other days of the week. And so I just get this sense, and I look forward to it every week, that there's this blending of giving and serving and celebrating. It makes for a great day of celebration. And I make sure that I'm exhausted by the time Karina gets home, so there's no energy left for the honeydew list. (laughs) But the question is this. What is it that you can do that would connect giving and serving with joy and celebration? Because that was the point of the tithe. Let me give you some ideas as we're starting to reopen around here. And I'll give some ideas for those of you joining online in a second. But but maybe in the months ahead, you want to linger a little bit and, uh, and wander around the building or drop in from time to time during the week and see what's going on. Have a look at the children who are gathering downstairs and eating and crafting and learning and singing and and learning just how much God loves them and what it means to have Jesus in their lives. Uh, linger a little bit in the parking lot and see those little clusters of people who are gathering together, some of them meeting each other for the first time, encouraging each other. Uh, join one of the, the little fellowships, the small groups or life groups that, that meet online and some of them starting to meet in person, learning to apply the goodness of God to their lives. Drop in, linger, loiter with intent. And then for you who are joining us online and for all of us, spend some time online. Google the mission partners that we talk about week by week. Find out what they're doing. There are some incredible stories out there. Spend a little bit of time on our YouTube channel. Find the baptism service. Listen to the testimonies of people whose lives have been forever changed. And think, my giving helps to make some of that happen. A question that sometimes comes up 
around the tithe or giving to the church is, you know, should, should that money all go to the local church or should it also be divided out among other worthy causes, uh, non-for-profit, uh, charitable Christian causes or other things out there? And there's no formula about this. This is not meant to be a mechanical deal. But I'll tell you, for Karina and I, for for most of our life, our practice has been to give to the church where we live and work and serve, to give there first. And then, yeah, we give to other things that we're passionate about, Canadian Baptist Ministries or Compassion or World Vision or the Cancer Society. That's been our practice. Uh, But you'll find it in your own life. I mentioned three tithes. In Israel, there was a third tithe that was called the poor tithe. The poor tithe happened once every three years. And here it is described in Deuteronomy 14, verse 29. This was the purpose of the poor tithe. So that the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live within your towns can come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. So there's these three tithes. Not clear exactly how they fell in in the three-year cycle of people's lives, but we know that they accounted for some maybe 20 to 30% of the giving, of the generosity of God's people. This is kind of interesting, too. You know the question we get most commonly when we teach on tithing? Can you guess? Should I tithe on the gross or... The net. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't doesn't use those sort of terms. Again, it's not meant to be mechanical. Maybe the way to answer is it depends whether you want God to bless you on the net or the gross. I, I don't know. But the, the, but the reality is that there are many people like Israel for whom that suggestion of thinking about generosity, um, starting around the idea of a tithe, that that... That's meant to be more of a floor than a ceiling, uh, meant to be a baseline, not a goal line. But just to be clear, uh, this is not meant to be a mechanical thing. It's meant to link generosity with celebration of the goodness of God. Tithing is a discipline, but it's a discipline that's meant to shape character and cultivate generosity and expand the soul and bring joy. If it's not bringing joy, there's... There's something that's been disconnected in the process of reaching that uh, that end stage where you're making the donation. And if uh, if you're listening to this and it's finding you at a place in your life where maybe your finances are kind of a mess, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, I just know that you know for for lots of us. The finances are kind of a mess. It has been a hard couple of years, and it's hard even still. It may take time. Be prudent. Be wise. Maybe you you just decide we're going to grow 1% at a time over a number of years. Or we're going to take one step up the staircase that, that Art so skillfully presented. But you decide that I'm going to try and obey and honor God in the decisions I make here. Israel did it, and it shaped the generosity of their people. But I mentioned that that was only one part of the framework. Here's the second part 
Again, if you're clocking this, the first two take a long time. The next three go fast. Second one was first fruits generosity. What do we mean by that? Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. In verse 19, God says, I want you to bring the best of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. What's going on here? In Israel, they lived day to day. They lived harvest to harvest. If your fields didn't produce crops, chances were pretty good that you would not survive the year. So when they saw the first plants appear, the first shoots, the first buds on the fruit trees, and they saw in that the promise that that a full harvest would be to follow, that meant life for them. And there was great rejoicing in that. And here's what they would do. The, the farmers would actually take a little reed and they would tie it to the best and the healthiest of the first plants to grow up. They'd say, I'm going to give that one to God. God gave it to me. I'm going to give it to God. That's the first fruits. And the idea behind this brought them so much joy that they would organize parades and day-long festivities where they brought all the first fruits before God in worship. And here's how that moment is described. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. And then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father, that's Abraham, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and he lived there. But then he became a great nation. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given to me. And here's the instructions. Verses 10 and 11. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And then you and the Levites. Remember that group that you're also helping to sponsor? And the foreigners... Strangers among you, refugees, orphans, widows, uh, they'll all rejoice together in the good things that the Lord your God has given you and your household. The festivities surrounding this event were the, one of the highlights of the whole year for God's people. And they would say those words with delight. My father was a wandering Aramean, but I don't wander anymore. God's been good to me. God has given me a home Food to eat, shelter over my head. In fact, the practice of first fruits generosity was so ingrained in the lives of God's people that when the Apostle Paul, centuries later, was trying to figure out a way of expressing what it meant that God would send Jesus as an act of profound generosity to his people, listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But God has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Jesus is God's first fruit. It's kind of like God tied a reed around him. He was crucified, but then victorious. And when he emerged from the tomb, there's that reed saying, this is the first of many who will be ushered into eternity because of him. He's the first fruit. The idea of first fruit generosity is actually an important one when it comes to making the transition from money as a drug to money as a tool. Because the opposite way of handling our money, I guess you might call it last fruits. And this might actually be the default position for lots of us. We get our paycheck and we do the last fruits deal. So we pay the rent first or the mortgage 
we pay our utilities and all of our obligations, and then we do our spending, and then we wait to see at the end of the month if there's anything left over, and then that goes in the offering basket. We used to have offering baskets. I guess we just don't have those so much anymore. But Israel reversed it. They said, I'm not going to give God the leftovers. I'm going to give God first. So here's what that might look like for us. Um, actually, this will have to be an imaginary exercise. But you remember we used to have checkbooks? Anybody still have a checkbook? A few of you? Okay. I want you to imagine sitting at your desk and you're writing out your checks for the month. There's one for rent. There's one for your utilities. Maybe there's a car payment. There's insurance. But the first one that gets written is the tithe. And as you write that, you're saying, thank you, God, for all that you've given to me. God bless the work of my hands. And then every check you write afterwards, you thank him a little bit more for everything that you have to give. Now, it may be that for lots of us, we do our financial work now online. But you can still do that sort of thing. And we provide lots of online giving tools to cement it. But it's the same deal. Every few weeks when you review your finances, you go and you stop. And, and when you see that transaction, you just pause and you, you thank God. He is the first fruit in your financial life. Here's the third part of the framework of generosity. It had to do with harvest, harvesting generosity. Now, again, we're living in an agricultural economy when we're back in the world of the Old Testament. And if you live in an agricultural economy, harvest is like payday. And so God filled the harvest with reminders to be generous. He said, this is Leviticus 23, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of the field. Don't gather all the gleanings of your harvest. Leave some for the poor and the foreigners residing among you. The idea here is that you, you wouldn't take every last grain of, of wheat, every last fruit of the tree. You'd leave something around the edges. For those who had little or nothing, for those who were refugees or strangers living in the land. We actually see it. There's a poignant moment in the life of Jesus where his disciples are walking through the grain fields and they're there right along the outskirts. And as they're walking, it says the disciples are picking little bits of grain. And they get stopped by the religious authorities and questioned for this. And you would think if you got caught in a field that wasn't your own and you were picking from the grain and from the fruit, that the charge, the allegation would be theft, right? Stealing. That wasn't the charge because they were doing exactly what they were entitled to do under the law of harvest generosity. The problem for the religious authorities is they were doing it on Sunday. And they were kind of hung up on that thing. And Jesus says, you know, remember that uh, the, the Sabbath was created for us, you know, not you for the Sabbath. Interesting, too. Think about for a second what that says about Jesus and his disciples, that they were having to pick up the gleanings on the edge of the field. What does that say about their own financial welfare and livelihood? And one day the disciples stopped and asked Jesus, said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And it has that odd little phrase in it. It says, give us today our daily bread. And for centuries, we've sort of applied that to all kinds of different things. But at its most basic level, that is a reminder that for him and his followers, they never had more than a day's worth of food on reserve. 
One of the reasons that the early church honored and cared for the poor so much is because of Jesus. Because of the life that he lived and the way that he lived it with those who are most in need. So 2 Corinthians 8 says, and you hear it often as a scripture that surrounds our, our givings in the life of the church, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich in glory, yet for your sakes he became poor. And so they would, they would do everything they could to honor the poor. Harvest generosity. There was all kinds of teaching on what that, what that meant. And the rabbis would teach what it meant to, to have a defective crop that you would just leave there. If, if a bunch of grapes was missing a few grapes and it wasn't perfectly formed the way, the way it should, should look, you just left it on the vine. Left it for somebody who needed it. If you were harvesting the trees and one fell on the ground, you don't, Bend over and, and pick it up. And that wasn't to preserve your back. That was to leave it there for somebody who might need it. If you forgot to bring in some of your crops, and it occurred to you later, hey, we forgot to harvest in the west field, you didn't go out and do it. You left it there. There's a verse in the Old Testament that speaks about it. In Deuteronomy 24, when you're harvesting, if you overlook even a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. That phrase that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. The POWs of the Bible, the poor, the orphan, the widow. So that the Lord your God may bless you. And through you, God's people, those who are most impoverished, could be blessed and fed. Here's what you need to understand about the Old Testament, if you if you haven't realized this already, because sometimes we read it and it feels dull and strange and foreign and filled with rules and regulations that don't make sense. But for Israel, when their hearts were working right, they didn't complain about any of these practices. They didn't whine about them. They gloried in them because it made them a people of generosity. There was a, a story a uh, famous story that rabbis would tell in instructing their people. It said a, a man was out harvesting and, and he realized weeks later that he'd left a sheaf of wheat in his field. And when he found out that he'd forgotten, he told his son to go and sacrifice two young bulls as an offering. One of them would be enjoyed within their own household among the village where they were apart. The other would be given as a peace offering. A bull was enough to feed an entire village. Be kind of like a farmer giving away two tractors. And the son asked the dad, why is it you're so excited that you've just forgot this little sheaf of wheat in the field? And the dad tells him, you know, this is the only commandment in all of the Torah that you cannot deliberately fulfill because you can't forget something on purpose. What a wonderful thing the dad says. I can obey God, and sometimes I can even do it by accident. It's a good thing to obey God, so we're going to celebrate that. God can even turn a bad memory into a spiritual gift. Don't you love that? The idea here is that you make money a tool for God, not a drug for your own indulgement. And when you do that, not only will you learn to give systematically, but sometimes You'll give accidentally, spontaneously. Every once in a while, you, you forget a sheaf and you just leave it there. What does that mean for us? It means every once in a while, you just leave somebody an awesome tip because you did the math wrong, but you're not going to correct it. Every once in a while, you see somebody standing there in the corner asking for money, and you know all the reasons why you should or shouldn't give, but you give it to them anyway 
because your heart is moved. Every once in a while, you get one of those many, many, many letters from Canadian Baptist Ministries or the Scott Mission or whatever cause, and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to send them a check. Bless them. Every once in a while, money comes your way. You weren't expecting it. It's a windfall, and you just pass it along. It's harvest generosity. Here's the last two, and they're quick. Offerings. We think of everything around here as offerings, but in the Old Testament, that was a specific function. The the laws around offerings were long, they were arduous, they um, they were elaborate and complex. They're not simple and straightforward like our own tax code. Oh, come on, that was a little bit funny, right? <laughs> I, I know we're... 25 minutes, 30 minutes in. but In that culture, food was money, and so the offerings were around food. They brought grain offerings, they brought livestock offerings, and often what they would bring would be enough to feed a village. There was so much joy attached to it, so much celebration. In fact, their offerings were, they're sometimes called wave offerings. Anybody want to guess what they did with a wave offering? I was actually thinking, just for the fun of it, we might do a wave offer. So let's do this. Uh, I want you to reach into your pocket or your purse and grab your wallet. Okay? Or a credit card. Or because you do so much of it online, maybe just grab your phone. Okay? When you've got it in your hands, I'm going to ask you to hold it up. As an act of worship. And we're just going to wave it before the Lord. There we go. God bless you, Lord. Thank you for all of your provision in our life. Now pass it to the person next to you. Okay, and Art, we're going to take up another collection today. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is it just an act of delight? I'm going to get this back. Let me give an example of a, a modern-day expression of what this might look like. It was a man giving a large gift to a nonprofit organization. He told the exec, hey, you probably want to know why, why I'm doing this. And the exec figured there would be a reason. It was a cause that meant something to them. There was a personal connection. It touched their heart. And he's surprised when the man says, no, actually, I want to buy this car. It's, it's a really nice car. And we've got the money. We can afford it. And so I asked my wife, and, and she said, well, I guess I'm okay with it. But she thought a little bit more and said, I think I'd be okay with it even more if you made a similar matching contribution to this charity that I'm really passionate about. So that's why I'm here. I don't know anything about what you do, but I want the car. <laughs> what if, what if as a church or as followers of Jesus, we imposed a 100% luxury tax on items. You can still buy them sometimes. But when you buy them, you agree that you're going to give the same amount to some area of the work of God. Maybe sometimes we decide that we would do more with less. Maybe sometimes you go ahead with the purchase. And at the same time, releasing even more into the work of God for good work. The last thing is Sabbath generosity. You know, the Sabbath was a big part of Israel's life. Every seventh day, you would voluntarily give up income by not working. You're going to rest and trust God. 
And then every seven years would be a Sabbath year. And the land would rest. Whatever produce, whatever food had been produced in years prior, it would get shared so that field could lie dormant and heal. And all the servants were freed. Not just that. This was unprecedented in the ancient world. The servants would be given money by their masters so that they could survive the year when they were not working. They would forgive all debts. Hey, how many of you are praying for a Sabbath year? They would forgive all debts. And then every seven Sabbath years, so once every 49 years, the 50th year was to be a year of jubilee. Not only would they free their servants and forgive debts, but all land would revert to its original owner. Can you imagine what an unbelievable act of generosity that would be? In fact, when Jesus begins his ministry, this is in Luke chapter 4, He said that he had come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. The first public statement when he he makes, when he emerges in the world to begin his ministry, is the promise of the generosity of God. The Jubilee is here. In my coming, the best gift that has ever been given from the biggest giver in the universe, is now happening. A reminder that God has given us all that we have, and especially given us Jesus, the best that he has. How could we do anything else with our resources but surrender them to him? I know Jesus would love it. I know it would be a marvelous thing for the GTA. I know it would be great for our church. And it would help me and help you to get out of the drug category into the tool category. So I guess as the clock strikes 1230, I just want to pray with you. May it be so. May it be so. Let me invite Job to come and lead us now in worship.